0: Welcome to the Whole Council Podcast. I'm John Snyder, and with me again is our special guest, Jordan Thomas, pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Memphis, one of many pastors. So uh, Jordan has been a very kind friend uh, to Christ Church and to me for about 20 years. So we're we're coming to our last podcast uh, on Hebrews, and we're looking at chapter 10. So Jordan, kind of give us a, a picture of how that falls into Hebrews.
1: Well, uh, just hearing the absurdity of our third and final podcast on Hebrews. Yeah. You know, we've, we've exhausted it.
0: Uh, yeah, you it, preached seven years on
1: it. Yeah, so, so three three few-minute podcasts. But yeah, yeah I, I just have to give a quick concession. I apologize to chapter four. I apologize <laughs> to, <laughs> to chapter nine. Um, but we want to look at Hebrews chapter 10, because in my estimation, it's the core of the main theme beneath the superiority of Christ. The biggest of all the themes of Christ is superior. He's superior Mm -hmm. to angels, Moses, uh, Aaron, sacrificial system. But in that superiority to Aaron in the Levitical priesthood, the biggest portion of Hebrews is Christ is the superior and final high priest. Mm And that's what chapter 10 is really about. It culminates from chapter 5 through 10, this grand look at what Christ's priestly work has accomplished and why he is that adequate priest. So with that in mind, I would like to look at the first 14 verses of Hebrews 10, and I will read it for us. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come... And not the very form of things can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, this is the sign, when he comes into the world, so we know we're talking about the incarnation, verse five again, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices, offerings, whole burnt offerings, and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward, until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So much could be said. We'll try to rein in our thoughts. But the main thing we have here is a picture of God the Son accomplishing what the Old Testament, in particular Psalm 40, said would happen.
0: So, Jordan, how does this portion of Scripture fit into the flow Mm. of the argument about Christ's superiority and dealing with all that Old Testament picture of priest, sacrifice, temple?
1: Yeah. We get the theme of Christ's priesthood throughout the whole letter of Hebrews. It's in chapter 1. We've already dealt with that. But really in chapters 5 through 10, that is the impetus of the whole content. So in chapter 5, um, he is designated a priest by God, spoken to him by the Father. He didn't take the honor to himself. It was, it was assigned to him. And then that's walked out in the order of Melchizedek in chapter 7 and um, going into the Holy of Holies, chapter 8 and 9. But here in chapter 10, um, it, it, it's a picture of the Lord Jesus reading the Old Testament, I mentioned Psalm 40, but the flow, it's important to understand a little bit of what comes right before it, Mm -hmm. namely chapter nine. So what's happening in chapter nine is the author of Hebrews is reminding the reader how the Old Testament sacrifice happened and where. And he's basically painting a picture of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies in the beginning of chapter 9. He's even talking about the furniture and the Ark of the Covenant and the priest would go in once a year and he would sprinkle some blood. And then in chapter fourteen, uh, chapter 9, verse 14, he turns the attention to Jesus and his high priestly work. And that verse, in a very beautiful, broader context, but I'll just read that one verse, says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's saying these Old Testament priests and all their sacrifices could never do that. But you take the cumulative total of all of them and compare it to the one-time sacrifice of Jesus, and he can do what none of them could have ever done, namely, cleanse your conscience from all your dead works, basically all your efforts to save yourself, to forgive yourself. You know, we say a lot of times at Grace uh, Church in Memphis that uh, every contribution we try to make to our redemption only worsens our damnable predicament. (laughs) It makes it worse. It's a thing for which we should be forgiven. Mm -hmm. And um, here the author's saying, Jesus's blood cleanses you from, from all of that. So in the middle of 14, we get that statement, but it starts getting really, really bloody after that. Uh, It's like Leviticus Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in the kind of the latter third of of Hebrews 9. And to summarize, try to picture this. I'm a big fan of when you read the Bible, try to envision it. The author of Hebrews definitely wants you to see this. He he talks about how Moses was commanded by God to take this, this cluster of hyssop, a plant, you know, just a big cluster of, just imagine, long weeds, and to dip it in a basin of blood. So he's holding the stalks, he's got all these, uh, you know, wisps of this hyssop. He, He dips it in this basin of blood, and then he starts just to sprinkle that blood all over the tabernacle, all over the furniture, everywhere. Then he turns his attention and puts it all over the book, the law, the inspired writings. He just, the scrolls are doused in this animal sacrificial blood. And then how would you have liked to shown up to church on this day? He saturates all the people. You know, you wore your Sunday best. You just got your new suit, you know, straight out of the dry cleaners. And here's Moses just splattering blood all over the place. Everybody's dripping. But that is because God told him to. Why? Hebrews 9 tells us, because that was a portrait, that was a picture of another bloody person who would go into a better tabernacle, the true holy of holies, with a better sacrifice. Not animals, not goats, not bulls. Chapter 10 just said, blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible for them to take away sin. Listen to chapter 9, verse 24. This is so beautiful. He, Jesus, the priest who is also the sacrifice, went into the Holy of Holies and now stands before the face of God for us. He brought all of his righteousness and all of his redeeming accomplishments, the cross, into the throne room of heaven, not just to go to heaven for us, but 9:24, to bring that bloody sacrifice, in front of the face of God for us. And chapter 10 then tells us how Jesus embraced the assignment from heaven to do that for our salvation. So that's how the flow works to get us up to chapter 10. And uh, it's, I think, helpful to say, had what is found in chapter 10 not happened previously in Jesus's incarnation, somewhere along his earthly life and ministry, then all the glory of chapter 5 to 9 never would have been accomplished. Mm. So chapter 10 is like, it tells us how we got there um, after it's told us in 5 to 9 what was accomplished.
0: So walk us through what comes next in chapter 10.
1: Okay, I'll do my best. Here's a summary in one sentence. What happens in chapter 10 is at least one of Jesus's quiet times. (laughs) It's Jesus, during his incarnation, reading the Psalms. It says in chapter 5, when he comes, uh, verse 5, sorry, chapter 10, verse 5, when he comes into the world. So we know we're talking about earthly life and ministry, the incarnate Savior. When he comes into the world, he says, well, all the next words come straight out of Psalm 40. So we know Jesus is reading Psalm 40, and by divine illumination, <laughs> somehow he is coming into increasing understanding that what's written in that psalm is about himself and about this bloody, bodily sacrifice. He is to make, according to the will of God, to verse 14 us, to sanctify us forever. So just to back up, chapter 10 is Jesus reading the Psalms and realizing it's about him being the once for all time priest and sacrifice for the sanctification of the people of God forever.
0: Now, we mentioned this in a previous podcast, Luke one fifty two. one mm-hmm. of those wonderful uh, summary statements that Lou gives us about the ministry of Christ. But this is before his ministry, about his humanity, the fourfold growth of Christ there. Mm-hmm. And it mentions that he grows uh, uh, intellectually. Mm-hmm. When we th- talk about the growth of Christ, we're not saying that he is a man who is so holy and by the help of God, uh, and by God's favor, he grows and grows and grows and reaches a place where he kind of crosses over from being one of us to being son of God. Yeah. Uh, we're not not ta- that. Right. Not that. <laughs> not that at all. We're not talking about sinless, sinful imperfection in the humanity of Christ. Sinful ignorance. Mm-hmm. None of that. But what we are talking about is really quite a shocking for us who, who have hoped in him quite a shockingly clear picture of something that we may not have spent time considering, and that is, He is truly man, mm-hmm. not just truly God. And therefore, in God providing a representative, a mediator, uh, the final Adam, uh, He gives us Himself, uniting His Son to our humanity. But that humanity, it's it has to grow. So, it really, He really is born in the womb of Mary. He, you know, He is taught by Mary, you know, or Joseph and mm-hmm. you know how to how to walk, how to clothe yourself, how to eat. We can understand that, but when it comes to the spiritual aspects, it gets a little trickier for us. We mm-hmm. get bothered. Like mm-hmm. so you're saying, well, here's what we're saying. That God gave his son on earth the same means that he gives us. Yes. And the son is perfectly responsive. Yes. And at each stage in life, he is perfect. But as a five-year-old, he is not a perfect adult. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if he would have died at five, you know, the the hypothetical, uh, then then we're without hope. Mm -hmm. Um, He must come to a point where the Father says, you are now the perfectly suited mediator.
1: Yes, Uh, it would be joyful, glorious, and personally beneficial to continue to talk on that theme a lot. I would like to add just a few thoughts, and I'm sure those could lead you to adding more, and we could we could go back and forth a lot on this theme. It is treading on the precipice of mystery, right? There are things, there are secrets which belong to the Lord, but it is clear that what you're saying is a radically biblical truth Of faithful biblical Christology. He did not become the Son of God. He did not grow into a point where the Father approved him as an adequate Savior. We're not saying that. But the Scriptures do teach that the Lord Jesus, though divine, increased in his, I guess I would say, messianic self-awareness he didn't become the Messiah. He grew in his awareness. How did he do that? Well, us say Hebrews 5 gives us a picture of one of his quiet times in Psalm 110. Hmm. And it says, the father said to him, well, what did he say? You're a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. And so Jesus is reading Psalm 110 and saying, that's me. It's not that he became that. He, he grew in his awareness. Well, Hebrews 10, that's what we're saying. We're saying that he read the 40th Psalm, and it says things like sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. Behold, in the scroll of the book it's written of me, I delight to do your will. It's like Jesus is saying. I tremblingly understand from Psalm 40 that the reason the eternal second person of the triune God is incarnate is so that I can now die. No body, no death. That's exactly what Hebrews 2 says, Mm -hmm. that uh, because the children share in flesh and blood, therefore he likewise partook of the same, flesh and blood, so that through death... He could render powerless him who had the power of death, the devil, and free us who through fear of death were subject to slavery all our life. If he doesn't become incarnate, he can't die. What we're saying is that he grew in his understanding during the incarnation of that's why he has a body. So he stood before Pilate and said, for this purpose, I've been born. The whole reason I was born, whole reason I have a body is so that I could die on a cross. And so when he resolutely embraced that reality from his reading of the Psalms and, and the Old Testament, um, I believe before his public ministry, he, he was 100% aware, um, he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He, he stalked the cross. He hunted the cross. But like you said, he couldn't have died at 5 or 12 or... 20 and been an adequate redeemer. Shocking way to say it, he had to fulfill all righteousness and bring that active righteousness that we should have lived to the cross where he died the death that we should have died. So, so much to say about that glorious yeah, thing, brother. Yeah,
0: but I mean, you know, the, the picture that we see here of the true humanity of the Son of God interacting with the word of god is something that we don't often think of. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I grew up in church uh, and if you were to ask me, you know, even at, even in seminary, if someone would ask me, okay, explain how he interacted with the word, I would have almost have said, I think there was an invisible antenna that went up from his yeah. head yeah. and he got direct beep 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 yeah. beep, yeah. beep, yeah. beep yeah. and I don't get those and nobody yeah. else but Jesus did cuz he's god. Yeah. Well, he is god, but he's also truly man. And so yeah. we are it is a sweet deep but beneficial mystery to see our Lord uh, taking scriptures and, and um, being fashioned by their realities, guided by their words. Yeah. It does remind me of the, the passage you just mentioned, Isaiah 50, where it says, morning by morning, the Son speaking mm-hmm. about the Father, He awakens me. Morning by morning, He opens my ear. Yeah. And then He says... And I did not rebel or turn aside, kind of how you mm-hmm. translate those Hebrew words. Two, two very different pictures. One is to, you know, so the, the picture is Christ before the Father and the Word. You can imagine a passage like Psalm 110 or, or Psalm 40. You're to be, you are given this body to sacrifice it. Never in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, even the morning he woke up and that was the day he would give his body. Hmm. Never does he rebel and say, not me, Hmm. nor does he, the other Hebrew word for a sinful response, nor does he quietly sidestep it and kind of let it go and just say, well, we're just not going to talk about that today, Father. Yeah. So not only a picture of the the beauty of his true humanity and the proof of humanity, but also a perfect pattern for every one of us.
1: Well, I said, as soon as you say something, it's going to make me think of more things, (laughs) but... I'd be remiss if I didn't mention John 12. Uh, we're preaching through the gospel of John now. We're not quite to chapter 12. We're, we're just finishing 10. But um, the first time Jesus mentions that he's ready to go to the cross in John's gospel mm-hmm. is chapter 12. And it's when the nations come, the Gentiles come looking for him at the feast. So when the nations come to the Redeemer, not just one subset of humanity, he says, now my hour has come which is a big theme in John. But he goes on to add, what should I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour. And it's the most like steely, nerved backbone, resolute, plant a flag in the ground moment in human history (laughs) where he says, no, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then the father shouts from heaven and says, great idea. (laughs) I've glorified my name forever, and I'm going to keep doing that. And I'm going to do it especially through your redeeming labors. And nobody understood it. Uh, The crowd thought that it thundered or whatever. Uh, But the next thing John does, very next thing, he picks up Isaiah. He quotes chapter 6, quotes chapter 53, and he says, Isaiah spoke these things, 1241, I think. Because he saw Christ's glory and spoke of him. Hmm. I take that to mean Isaiah understood not only is the Messiah coming, he's coming to die. That's what I think Jesus is reading in Hebrews 10. He's reading Psalm 40. But the author of Hebrews is letting us see that when Jesus read Isaiah and when Jesus read the Psalms, he understood the primary purpose for his physical frame and the blood that coursed through his veins was so that he could lay down his life. And like you're saying, he embraced that divine assignment. I, I believe increasingly over his early incarnate life until on this day, when he's having his quiet time in Hebrews 10, there's no more increasingly Mm -hmm. It's, I have come to do your will. It's resolute, steely-eyed. Like I said, he's stalking the cross. He's hunting the cross. He's going to purchase uh, the people of God. And, you know, it compares him to all the other priests in verse 11. They all stand daily ministering, offering time after time sacrifices that can't take away sins. He knows. He's not going to do that. Mm -hmm. He's not going to do the repeated sacrifice. He's going to do this cataclysmic, shake heaven and earth sacrifice that's going to once for all, verse 14, sanctify, sanctify the people of God.
0: Jordan, you mentioned verse 14, and again, uh, it reads this way, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So really one of the gems of the entire Bible. Um, So what do you have to say about that? Yeah. Well, first off, there's
1: some words in there that sound very churchy, very religious, um, offering, perfected, sanctified. Uh, Let me just make sure we're on the same page about sanctified. There are theological categories of sanctification, which Mm -hmm. is an ongoing process of becoming conformed into the image of Christ that happens in the life of every believer. So the electric current of the power of Christ coming into the life of those who are united to him by faith shows up in being sanctified. That's not what Hebrews is talking about right right here. He's talking about sanctified in terms of clean, pure, holy. He has forever cleaned you. You are now pure. You are holy. You are set apart unto God. And he did that. You don't do that. This is a an accomplished reality. Mm-hmm. It's not an ongoing process. So I just want to make sure before I meditate a little on verse 14's realities that we're understanding that the deepest longing of the human heart, religious or not, is fundamentally the same. We're designed by our Creator to want to be close to God and clean before Him. Verse 14 is saying, Jesus did that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the meaning of sanctified. But um, again, you know, a lot, of, a lot of fruitful meditations could spring from this. I'll just make one uh, observation and then see what thoughts you may have to add. And knowing me, your thoughts may, may lead me to add more. By one offering, that's his bodily sacrifice, he has perfected, completed the work of redemption for all time for those who are sanctified. What that means is God has no buyer's remorse. He is not sorry that he saved you. He does not regret because you're such a pathetic excuse for a Christian, and you can't get your act together, and you keep stumbling over the exact same sins (laughs) over and over and over again, and you come back and you sound like a broken record, It's Jordan again. (laughs) I'm back, God. Uh, Remember the thing that I repented from and just was grieved over and feel like I never could get away from? But that last time I thought I really finally had a breakthrough, I'm back. I'm here again. Here, the Father wants us to know that He so values the work of the Son that He will forever, that's literally His words, for all time, you're clean he dealt with your sin, past, present, and future. Well, what's the evidence of that? That I now am sinless? No, it's that I keep, until I meet him face to face and my sin is gone, I keep bringing my life before him, back to him. I don't fear coming close to him because, this is astonishing, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, we can think, you talked about hypothetical a minute ago. We could say, hypothetically, if God wanted to condemn one for whom Jesus died, he doesn't want to, but if he did, he can't do it. Mm -hmm. There's no condemnation left. Not because he swept it under the rug. Christ took it. (laughs) That's what verse 14 is trying to say to us. So it's actually, look at how great Jesus is. Look at the obedience that he carried out because he believed what was said of the Messiah in Scripture. Look at this perfectly Spirit-filled man. Look what he accomplished. And here's where I'll stop. Come close. He regards you as fit for his presence. You are sanctified. You are perfected. And he'll never change his mind about that. That's how much he values the once for all time sacrifice of his son.
0: I think that, you know, what what you've been covering here, you've been dealing with the great objective of truths of Christianity. Hmm. So as you mentioned, none of this has actually even introduced your responsiveness to it. <laughs> yeah. You know, he hasn't mentioned your faith yep. or repentance, yep. or, you know, earnest love or, you know, or tenderness or anything. So he's hammering away at this. This great marble foundation, this unshakable, unalterable, immutable hope of the believer, but he doesn't end there. If we yeah. had time, we could go on, yeah. you know, through uh, especially chapters twelve and thirteen, where he's beginning yeah. to bring to bear, like because of these facts, live this way. Yeah. We could think of another portion of scripture that deals like this, where in. Romans 3, 4, and 5. Halfway through Romans 3, Paul gives the good news that it's never by rule-keeping, but by, uh, not by your rule-keeping, but by the rule-keeping of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. who became your propitiatory sacrifice, satisfying the wrath of God, lifting up His honor and His law's honor at the same time as providing mercy. Chapter 3, chapter 4, that is embraced by faith because faith, chapter 5, unites you to a new mediator, Jesus. Mm -hmm all that doctrine. And it's not until chapter 6, verse 11, that we meet the very first time in the book of Romans that Paul gives a command. Yeah. Yeah. So reckon yourselves. Yeah. Live on these realities, calculate them honestly, biblically, and then present. Yeah. Um, So same thing, objective truth, then experiential or applied truth. Sometimes we get questions. um, I don't know, you know, in the church where you're pastoring, because of a heavy emphasis on the application of truth, yeah. um, you, you can, I mean, there's always, I, I feel as a pastor, uh, there's always the concern, I don't want to lean one way too far the other. Yep. And I remember a young lady coming to me uh, in college and saying, um, my church is not quite as experiential in their emphasis as you are, and so which one's right? And how do I live the Christian life? Because sometimes I think I don't want to focus too much on doctrine and forget experience, and then yeah. the other side. And so I I said to her, imagine um, that you're walking a tightrope and you have this long pole. And on one side, on the far left side is uh, objective truth. On the far right side is experienced truth. Mm. Now, if you think the Christian life is the tightrope and the way you keep from falling off is constantly shuffling it back and forth. Too much experience, too much objective, too much head, too much heart. Then you're going to that's not the way to do it. And you would wear yourself out it's order. First, the great facts that you just r- reviewed, yeah. Yeah. then the great devotion of the heart flows Amen. in obedience.
1: Yeah. Amen. Uh, you know, the theological way to say that is the imperatives are built on the indicatives. The first half of all the you epistles... You didn't like
0: my tightrope illustration, oh. did you? <laughs> I was... I was gonna <laughs> get all brainy you on know <laughs> me. <laughs> uh, I loved it. Um... For those of you that are not in the third grade, (laughs) this is how we say it.
1: (laughs) The first half of all the epistles are the indicatives. It's what God has done for us in Christ. The second half, obviously there's perforated lines. You know, there's some imperatives in the first and indicatives in the second, but it's basically that setup. It's what God has done for us in Christ, indicatives. Now, therefore do imperatives. But you mentioned how Romans has its first exhortation. I just taught it Sunday. Uh, in chapter 6 on the Reckon. So five and a half chapters of no exhortation. Right. Just breathtaking. Can I dare to believe this is true? Mm-hmm. And then he'll tell you what to do. Hebrews is actually the same way, and it's actually in this chapter. The, the setup of Hebrews in two parts is chapter 1 through 1018. 1019 through the end. The first part, and this is the last, we're, we're touching the last pinnacle of the first part in 10 1 to 14. But in verse 19, same chapter, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, guess what no Old Testament high priest ever would have said to a million and a half Israelites? Come on, the Holy of Holies. <laughs> I can't explain it. Let's just all come in and take a peek. Jesus is saying, well, we're being told in the first 10 and a half chapters, he is such a redeemer. And then in verse 19, he turns around and says to everybody in the whole camp, come on in to the Holy of Holies. And so there are exhortations, you know, these aren't just uh, spiritual ideas to keep in our head. But if we don't have the indicatives, the work of God for us in Christ, I do think our uh, tightrope illustration, we probably uh, default to do. I think we're work based more by nature than we are grace-based sure. by nature. Yeah. So
0: Well, it, it's really humbling to us to be freely loved, for yeah. God to say, there's nothing lovely in you, but I have loved you infinitely. Do me sick? You think about... You know, if you went home and said to Tracy, your wife, honey, I all the way home, I just thought how much I love you. But I, but really, you know, the truth is, there's nothing about you that's lovely, but I'm just a great <laughs> kind of guy, you know? Yeah. So that, the natural man, really doesn't love grace. Yeah. So as we kind of bring these wonderful matters down to just some practical applications, mm-hmm. we, we've thought about a few. So let me throw in a couple, and then you, you can bring us to a close. Um, One I thought of is the very nature of how God revealed these truths to His Son through His Word is mysterious and wonderful. Mm -hmm. But to stop and remember that that the portions of Scripture that are mentioned here are mostly Psalms. Yeah. So what we have is God giving the Son and us, as we're allowed to kind of peek over His shoulder... Yep soteriological, life-altering, eternity-altering offering truths in a song. Yeah. So that immediately ought to alert us to the fact that what's being said is not appropriate if we only discuss it back and forth. Yeah. It must lead... To the man who, or the woman, or the child who grabs a hold of these truths, it must lead to an eruption of joy that we think of as producing song. You know, mm-hmm. and whether that is expressed in childlike, you know, happy obedience, uh, cheerful consecration, or whether it's you know song together with believers' songs in your home, whatever is appropriate, the joyful response. And uh, again, a quote that we've repeated here is a quote from Richard Roll, an English Bible translator prior to the Reformation. So he was in the Catholic Church, and God had done something in his soul. And so it kind of formed a a great, you know, it was the turning point for him. And he described it this way, I was compelled by God's work. I was compelled to sing what I had once only spoken. Hmm. You know, so I I think that, you know, you and I have both been in seminary and we've been in discussions after seminary classes where you can kind of battle back and forth people's views. But what an infinitely superior thing to do, you know, to take these truths and Mm. instead of discuss them, to bring them into the life in such a way that it erupts in song. Mm. Uh, Another application, which, by the way, we uh, there is a book that was in print, no longer in print, at least we, we've we've had some trouble finding it, by a man named Andrew Bonar, B-O-N-A-R, uh, 18th century Scott, who also uh, wrote the uh, memoirs of his friend Robert Murray McShane. And Bonar put together a book, Christ and His Church in the Psalms. I think it was, um, well, we forget, I think it was, because it may not be Banner that did it originally. Um, so if you go online, uh, you ought to be able to find in our show notes um, uh, a link to where you can find that. Um, but it's, just a, it's, a, it's not a technical commentary. He's just giving kind of warm thoughts of how would Christ have read this psalm. So really a kind of unique book. Um, my final application is this. I don't know how you felt about approaching Hebrews as a pastor to preach it, but I remember many years as a pastor, the earlier years, saying to myself, I am not ready to preach this book because of the harrowing warnings. Mm. And people immediately just want to interrupt the sermon and say, wait, 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 I just have one question. Is he talking to a Christian mm-hmm. or not? Mm-hmm. Can I lose my salvation or not? Okay, mm-hmm. first off, that is the absolute wrong question. Yeah. These are warning signs along the path of the Christian life. If you believe the signs, you will benefit and you will not fall. Mm. If you are an unbeliever and demonstrate it by ignoring the signs, you yep. will prove you're an unbeliever and yep. fall. Yep. But the point I want to make is, one way we know the measure... Of the preciousness of the truths that you just mentioned from chapters nine and ten, is the is the level of warning that God the Father gives us if we don't treasure these mm-hmm. and if we turn back, mm-hmm. because those are really just terrifying.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think what we were saying earlier about the the uh, tightrope of obedience and 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 just embrace of the beauties of Christ or indicative imperatives. Um. If we only think of the high priest and it doesn't bring into our life some obedience, we do set ourselves up justly for the import of those warnings. Mm. So I'll just close with a high priest uh, contemplation command that leads to obedience. It, it says it in Hebrews. Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider... Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, and it goes on to talk about his faithfulness. And so if you're considering Jesus, this glorious high priest of chapter 10 that we've talked about, then the life of faithfulness, like flowed out of him, will also by his power flow out of us. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks for joining us this week, and we hope that this has helped stir your own heart to renew your looking to Jesus.